Right now, there are more than 1,400 cold cases in Jacksonville. And they're more than a stack of files sitting in a vault collecting dust. They're a constant reminder that someone got away with murder. I'm Paige Kelton with Action News Jax. We've partnered with Project Cold Case and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to put the spotlight on unsolved local crimes. The goal? To generate a tip that leads to an arrest. For the family of Vera Sullivan, a Jacksonville woman found dead by her own son, one phone call or tip could end their three decades of waiting for justice. Action News Jack's Lorena Inclan has their story. Basically right up here in this clearing. Okay. Like right up in here. Tamika Jackson took us out to this wooded area near Clanzel T. Brown Park near Moncrief Road. 30 years ago, her mom's body was found here, rolled up in a carpet. Jackson was seven years old. Do you feel like coming back helps you cope with yeah, it's, it's actually even 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 this very moment, this, you know, this very day is therapy. During our interview, Jackson would get quiet as she remembered all the things her mom didn't get to see. Let me celebrate my mom's birthday with her. I don't get that. We don't get that. My siblings don't get that. The busy mom took the bus every day from her apartment just behind Clansell Park to the historic Seminole Club in downtown, where she was Mater D. On March 3rd, 1987, she never made it. Three weeks later, Jackson's older brother found his mom's body in the area known as a popular shortcut. We believe it was blunt force trauma, but there were some other indications that there might have been some more trauma. But of course, she was in advanced stages of decomp. These are photos of what the scene looked like in 1987. Action News Jack's Sky Vision drone shows us just how much has changed in 30 years. We had looked at several suspects over the course of time. Um, none of them really pan out to be uh, anything that we can put charges on. Police released this sketch of a man they were looking to question. Last month, the case was featured on ProjectColdCase.org and its Facebook page. The exposure generated a tip related to this sketch. Someone revisited the case, looked at that sketch, and, and thought maybe there might be a connection. Police are vetting that tip right now. Sergeant Dan Jansen also tells me they're reprocessing some evidence, but they still need your help. Jackson knows someone watching has answers. Did she suffer? Was it quick? I, those are the things that keep me up at night. Was it quick or did you torture her? You know, I need answers. I want to know. She tells me she'll never lose hope that her mom's case will someday get solved. Come clean. You'll feel much better about it. You can sleep better at night <laughs> with a clear conscience. Nobody deserves that. Nobody deserves that. Okay, so uh, let's start with Ryan first and sort of get, uh, talk to us about the, mo the, you had one of the most recent contacts with her and just how did Project Cold Case get involved in this case? Yeah, um, this victim, Vera Sullivan, was killed in March uh, 1987 and um, early last year, her daughter reached out to Project Cold Case and asked us if we'd put her mom's photo on our website and, uh, and follow up with a cold case spotlight. And uh, it took her a little while to find us a photo because she was, uh, unfortunately, she was a, just a young child when her mother was murdered. Um, but she was able to get us a photo and we put it on our website and, um, you know, kept in touch with her uh, over the last little bit to, to let her know that we were still, you know, trying to help her out. Um, we did a spotlight on the case recently 
And um, she was just so appreciative, you know, so thankful that we were able to get some of this information out after 30 years. She's been waiting for answers. And uh, it's generated a lot of uh, traffic on our website, um, a lot of, of traffic on Facebook. So we know the information is getting out there. And we're hopeful that it'll, it'll reach the right person that can come forward and, and help resolve this case. What's it like for you to see all that traction happening? I, I mean, it's, it's the behind the scenes stuff that, that I get so excited about. And sometimes I forget to share that with people that, uh, you know, we put one of those cases out there and hundreds of people are coming to our website just to look at that one page, you know, every day. And, uh, and that, that makes me excited because I know we've got we've to find, we've got to get it to the right person. And it's going to take going through a lot of people to get there. So knowing that people are taking the time out of their day to look at that spotlight and to read about that case, um, that's special, and I, I want the families to know that, that there are people out there that care, that are looking, and uh, you know, hopefully one day that call will come in. And Ryan, can you put into words for us how it makes a family member feel to know that people are still looking? So, you know, one of the hardest things to deal with when you lose somebody to an unsolved homicide is you really start to believe that they're forgotten. Um, you know, obviously. Uh, your loved one's co-workers, um, you know, they go on about their lives. If you can imagine 30 years later, you know, they probably don't have contact with any of, of her mom's old co-workers. Uh, neighbors have moved away, but then even more intimate, you know, uh, spouses, uh, in-laws, cousins, siblings, you know, uh, you start to, to feel like, am I the only one that thinks about this person anymore? Am I the only one that cares that they're gone and that, you know, no one's been arrested? And so when, when we come forward and just offer something as small as putting a picture on a website or doing a spotlight or something as big as doing a, a, an interview for television, um, that's more than anybody's done for a lot of these families in a really long time. And it, it, it means something to them and they're, they're never shy about showing their appreciation for that. One last thing for you, I know a lot of people don't tend to think about the surviving family members and how one action, one crime, could alter the course of somebody's life forever. Yeah. Uh, could you explain that to us and how, how much of an impact that is? Yeah, people don't understand that this is a traumatic event in, in a, a survivor's life, which is how we refer to those that are left behind as survivors. Uh, it's a traumatic event. A lot of them experience PTSD. Uh, a lot of them experience complicated grief where they're literally stuck in that exact moment when they found out their loved one was murdered. And, and for decades later, they, they can't move on. They can't function in society. They can't keep a job. Uh, they can't keep focused. And, and it all ties back to this traumatic event in their life. And, and you know, you, there's a lot of things that, that um, the brain does to try to cope with something. And sometimes it's uh, creating scenarios that make sense to you that are logical. Um, that's something that I did uh, with my dad's case. And, and so, you know, that, those things all add up to changing the entire trajectory of your life, whether it's your career or your personal relationships. Um, all of that is affected uh, by this one event. And, and what, who knows what could have been, you know, with the support of a parent, um, with the love of, and nurturing of a parent that, that is lost to a child, you know, in this specific case, uh, with the Vera Sullivan case. You know, a young daughter grows up without a mother and unfortunately her father passes away a short time later, you know, and so she grows up without either parent um, being there. Not that she wasn't loved, I'm sure she has a story about that, but, uh, but that changes who you are and it changes how you deal with other people and how you love and how you care for people. Uh, it's it's an, a 
tremendous impact on your on your life forever. It, it's important for people to think that it's not just one. I mean, obviously the vic, the murder victim suffered enormously, but it's an incredible ripple effect after that. So exactly. many other people are still suffering 30 years later. And I'm glad that you explained that because I don't think people realize that. And the first inclination is for people to want answers, answers, mm -hmm. and that's that's normal. You know, the more give me information, how did it happen, when did it happen, all the all the infinite details, which we're not always at liberty to provide. And that's the one of the one of the um, caveats uh, in in cold cases that you know I, I I have some answers, but I don't have all the answers that I can give you. Number one. Number two, some answers that I do have, I, I can't put out there for the integrity of the case. And this is where this relationship between Project uh, Cold Case and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office works really nicely. Uh, and especially in this particular case, we did a, we, we did a spotlight in this case, and um, believe it or not, it generated a tip. So we received a Crime Stoppers tip with our partners over at Crime Stoppers, and um, we're, we're vetting that information right now. Um, I, it, it pointed to a possible suspect, but with, I'm not going to put any names out there without vetting that information first because I don't want to falsely accuse anyone. But, but that's what we're looking for in this partnership, and that's what we're looking for with spotlighting these cases um, together with Project Cold Case. Very interesting. And I know you can't share too much of the details of that tip, but um, you, you said it pointed to a potential suspect. So what happens now? So what we'll do is we'll obviously we'll go through the case file with a fine tooth comb. We'll, we'll see if this person was ever listed, if they're a viable suspect or not. You know, have we looked at them in the past? Um, if not, we're going to look at them now. We'll, we'll we'll see what kind of uh, uh, history he has, and if there was any kind of you know where where this person was at the time of the the murder when it when the incident occurs. You know, were they living here in Jacksonville? Were they incarcerated? Were they hospitalized? These are a myriad of questions, you know. Um, is, there, is there a connection between the victim and the alleged suspect? And so there's a, there's a lot of investigating that goes on, and it's just kind of a, a, um, a starting point, a jumping point, if you will. And that's critical for an investigation? Absolutely. Uh, Sergeant, just to get the timeline correct, uh, when, when was the spotlight uh, put out? The spot, we just ran the spotlight this week, this week. Um, okay. on Project Cold Case. So uh, Monday morning, that spotlight went live, and we uh, started sharing it on social media this week. Okay. Um, and I think uh, I think it's been on it's been on Facebook for a, you know a day or two now, and it'll be uh, on Twitter and Instagram this week as well. So that tip is is, is fairly fresh. It's brand new, absolutely. Yep. Um, it's uh, in fact I just uh, just put it on a detective's test desk yesterday. So. Very good. Now, let's um, sort of rewind a little bit. Tell us uh, what can you share about the details of this so, case? Yeah, so um, she, uh, Vera uh, is reported missing on March 3rd in 1987, and she was missing for about three weeks. Um, she's found on March 22nd, and she was rolled up in a, like a carpet padding, a carpet pad. And it was in a wooded area behind um, Palm Terrace Apartments. Um, we have I have a couple pictures we'll provide with you, provide for you a little bit later. But um, she was found by a family member, which is one of the sadder parts of this. And um, once uh, the family member lets the other family members know, you know, the discovery, um, her Vera's husband actually runs home 
um, and he grabs a gun and he tells his, his kids to stay right here. Uh, he runs back to where the scene is thinking that you know, it's just a natural reaction that he's going to find a suspect there or something, even though it's, time has passed. Um, and so, of course, he was in a panic when he, when he runs home and he, and he does all this. But the, the, she was already in, in an advanced stage of decomposition, so um, there wasn't a whole lot that he was going to do right there and then at that particular instant. But she's found in that location. Um, we had looked at several suspects over the course of time. Um, none of them really panned out to be uh, anything that we could put charges on, you know, anyone that we could put charges on. And I understand there was a sketch put out as well. There was, there was, and in fact, that's, uh, that's part of the tip that we received uh, just this week is someone revisited the case, looked at that sketch and, and thought maybe there might be a connection. Um, but yeah, there was a sketch that was put out. And how, uh, so obviously uh, that was thanks to potential witnesses who helped put that sketch? There was a witness that seen somebody walking from the area they believed was on the day that she went missing. You know, so that's it's kind of a reach at that point to say that that's this person that they saw walking from the scene is a murderer. But you know, obviously we're going to take their information, we're going to develop it as much as we can, and hopefully it leads us somewhere down the road to uh, identifying a suspect. Yeah, I think even uh, in the the newspaper article from back then they describe it as um, someone that may have information. Okay. You know what I mean? Not necessarily someone that was. The murderer, but someone that they believed had could have seen something, and they wanted to, to talk with them further. Seen in that area. Right. Um, when I think back to 1987, obviously I don't think there were surveillance cameras, right? Um, no. And um, obviously DNA evidence was. Explain to us a little bit about that time frame in terms of DNA technology. Well, DNA technology was in 87, if it was anything, was in its very infancy, you know. Um, it really didn't start touching the law enforcement community until the late 90s, early 2000, and that's when it really started taking off. Um, but what's unique about the, the time frame, I like to call it that little 20-year window between the late 70s and the late 90s, is a lot of blood evidence was collected for blood typing purposes, um, not realizing what the future is going to hold in DNA. So it, it was not prevalent in 1987, not by a long shot. And so we do have some evidence that we're looking at uh, and, and reprocessing. We have processed some evidence over time, but there's, there, was, um, there was more evidence there. Obviously there was the, the mattress, but um, when you're working through evidence, it's not always, some, of the, some evidence is not conducive to lifting DNA off of it and, and padding is, is one of those things that's not, very good at doing that. Particularly padding that's been out in the woods for yeah, three weeks. For quite some time. Yeah, right. on the elements. Sergeant, can you share how she died? Um, well, it, it was basically, we, we believe it was blunt force trauma, but there were some other indications that there might have been some more trauma. But of course, she was in advanced stages of decomp. Um, we didn't see any evidence of a gunshot wound. So that's why we believe it's blunt force. Do you know if potentially the suspect was known to Vera? We don't know. We don't know that at all. I mean, it, it could go either way. Um, we're, we tend to believe that maybe there might be an acquaintance there, but I can't say that definitively. And Sergeant, so she, was she on her way to work 
that day? Yes, according to her family members. Okay, so right. uh, she was supposed to get on a bus. Is right. that can I guess uh, paint the picture for us? What was what was she doing that day? So normally she took the bus to work, and this was the route that she traveled. So the, um, it's a beaten down path behind the apartments, and she would travel that path, and it's a commonly used area, and so there's a little bit of a wooded area on each side of that, and um, and so that was her normal. Um, travel route and that's why the family was able to find her because they just kind of backtracked where she would normally travel and uh, so she was on her way to catch the bus. She caught the bus daily so that's that's what happened in this particular day as well. And so she ended up obviously not showing up for work. Correct. So that was that the initial um, heads up that something was wrong? Yes. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, uh, go it, fa family members and things. I, I know that obviously you guys do a profile of the victim and also the potential murderer in this case, is that right? What have you garnered from that? Well, I don't, again, I can't talk about the, the intrinsic details of the case. Um, we always do victimology. You know, what is their normal patterns and behaviors and, you know, uh, if, are, are they drug users? Are they not drug users? Because, you know, if they're a drug user, maybe they're interacting with somebody they, they purchase drugs from and a rob you know, they were robbed, or are they not? You know, uh, you know I think about cases like the uh, Gary Bell case, um, which that one is solved, but he, he was killed in the very same area. Um, he was, he took the bus to work every single day, just like Vera did, and he kept his money in his shoe because the area was known for, um, for high crime activity. And so he, always, he was always careful about that, but he was minding his own business and he was approached by an individual and ended up being a robbery and uh, he was killed. So we kind of look at those patterns and, and we look at um, the victim and their history and see if there's anything that's going to lend themselves to, to being a victim of crime or not, is it random, you know, that type of thing. What was, what was it in Vera's case? What, um was she a drug user? Was she, you know, what? No, we don't have any indication of that, of, of her being involved in any kind of criminal activity. So mm -hmm. um, I can't say that she, that particular day, if this was um, related to a sexual battery or not at this point. Um, once again, we're kind of dealing with the degradation of evidence because she was in advanced stage of decomp. So it's hard to really put your finger on some of the concrete evidence you would have if you'd have found her on March 3rd. Have you been able to figure out around what time uh, this happened? Or uh, It is documented. I don't have the documentation in front of me. I didn't commit that to memory. But yeah, we do have that document, the, the time frame. I, if I remember correctly, it was early morning hours. That's what I was wondering, if it was I in broad think. daylight or... or yeah, I, I don't remember exactly. I, don't know if you're, um, yeah. I know she was the, the head maitre d' at the Seminole Club in downtown. That was her job, which was... Um, at that time, you know, the Seminole Club was a, was a pretty big deal, and um, so there was a, <clears throat> probably a lot of um, businessmen that, that knew her, um, you know, from what I could gather from, from the family and the people I've talked to, you know, it was uh, very much unlike her to show up to work, which immediately sent up red flags. Um, she, you know, she went in there, and, and um, every day she was supposed to and you know so it was it was pretty immediate that she was recognized as missing it wasn't one of those cases where you hear that you know it's not uncommon for somebody to disappear for a couple days at a time uh, that doesn't appear to be the case from what I've, I've heard from the family 
What role has, um, obviously the family reached out to, to Ryan and Project Cold Case, but have uh, you had a chance to talk to them recently as well? I have not. Um, generally, uh, and, and Ryan can touch on this a little bit as well, um, generally whenever we get a tip or a lead, we don't immediately run and call the family because sometimes it, you know, it might give a little bit of false hope, if you will. But we want to vet that information, you know, and, and, you know, take it to the nth degree and see if it really leads us down somewhere where we can make advances in the case or if it's a, it's a dead end, you know. Um, so generally, we try to vet all that information out before we start contacting families. Uh, if, I, if I contacted, for an example, um, in the Kamaya Mobley case, if I contacted that mother every time I had a tip, I'd have contacted her 2,000 times over the course of 18 years. Uh, and some people like that and some people don't, you know, so um, generally speaking, it's our policy that we keep the we keep the integrity of the case file as tight as we can because the day may come, Farrah case, Mobley case, Hyde case, any of these, that will end up in a courtroom and so we want the case to be, as, the integrity of the case to be as tight as it can, the timelines to be as tight as it can and the information so that somebody's not running into a courtroom saying, well, I saw that on the news or I saw that and read it in the paper or what have you. So. Sergeant, how important is it? I mean, this case is what, more than 30 years old? Mm -hmm. And here you have just this week a brand new tip. What's that like to, to hear that it's jogging, might jog somebody's memory? It's good. Um, we, uh, believe it or not, it's, it's more common than, than people might anticipate. We receive tips all the time on, on various cases. Um, we get them on uh, long-term missing persons investi investigations, Degler and Hayes, we get those all the time. The two boys that went mixing, missing from Paxson. Um, the Rosemary Day uh, case, she's a missing uh, female from the west side. Uh, so we, we flag them in various databases and if there's any kind of activity or any, anything that comes up with their name, um, there's we have that kind of alert system put in place. We get tips from um, random individuals, crime stopper tips. So we vet them all, you know, and, but we don't advertise every time we get a tip. So uh, there's, there's a lot of information that ebbs and flows through the cold case unit. Um, it's, but it's a huge undertaking when you have this many cold cases as well. And another thing, just um, like this case is 30 years old, but that doesn't mean that it's been sitting on the shelf for 29 years. Um, you know, this case in particular, I think from conversations we've had, has been looked at over the years a few times from different leads and tips that have come in. Um, but here we are 30 years later and there's never been enough to, to make an arrest or identify, you know, a suspect. Um, so we want to keep, keep getting these cases out there. We just never know when the right person will see it and come forward with the information that can put this case over, over the top. And even though the sketch is now 30 years old, is it still valuable to put it out there to, to the public, even though this person might not look like that anymore? Absolutely, yeah, because uh, people remember things uh, as they were back then as well. So, um, you know, that's the one thing we kind of uh, impress upon them is to think back to the time. Now, I know that, again, um, piggybacking off what you're saying, what you're saying is in the Degner and Hayes case, we have kind of advanced drawings, what they should look like today versus the original, you know, their original photos when they went missing. So, um, but we, we ask individuals, uh, we're working on another case, the Carol Barrett case, where there's a sketch drawing on it as well. 
and we have people focus on the year and the time and the sketch that was provided then, you know. And so, and of course, you put the uh, information out there that X amount of years have, has passed by, so this photo could have changed, or this individual was going to look a little bit different. And kind of touching on um, what you were asking earlier, um, I had a phone call in the, in the office, um, it was on Monday, I believe, from a friend of a victim that was killed in Atlantic Beach back in um, the late 70s. And she asked if, you know, if we even were concerned or even bothered looking at the case, that type of thing. And I said, well, let me, let me pull up the case and look at it. And they give me the name. And as soon as I heard the name, I knew that we had looked at it last year. And so um, it was part of the DNA grant that we had received. And so we ran some DNA in the case to see if it would come up with anything. And, and we didn't. We weren't unsuccessful in making any gains in that particular case. But it was kind of interesting that they called and they thought that nobody had ever looked at the case. And when I told them that, yeah, we ran DNA on it in 2016, um, she was floored. You know, she was like, oh, I, I, don't, I couldn't believe it. I, I had no idea. And so, again, we're not in the business for advertising. I'll let Ryan do the advertising. We're in the business of solving cases. That's what I was going to say, even though, you know, you don't really uh, reach out to them and let them know every single thing that happens, it, is it kind of to, to dispel the misconceptions that people think that their family members are forgotten, detectives are not looking at it, um, w would it be good to tell them, I guess, you know, hey, we tried it, but we couldn't, we couldn't do it? Yeah, I mean, that's... That's a good question. You tell me from, from your seat. How would, how would you feel about that? You know? I think, you know, you're talking about uh, a lot of different individuals, a lot of different personalities, a lot of different situations, and there's going to be families out there that would really, really like to hear that information. And then there's going to be, you know, the occasional phone call where somebody doesn't want you to call them unless you're calling to tell them that there's an arrest. Right. You know, it's, it's a... Mm -hmm. Living through this kind of thing is an emotional roller coaster, and and you have ups and downs, and and sometimes they're related to the case, and sometimes they're you know sometimes they're directly related to the case, sometimes they're indirectly related to the case, um, but there's such a fine line between hope and false hope, and and it can really be detrimental to a family if they believe that every time a detective calls, that's that's going to fix their world because the, you know the other thing that that families have to understand is. When an arrest does finally come, and, and we're hoping that you know at some point all of these you know uh, have an arrest, um, it still doesn't change the fact that your loved one's gone and that they were taken violently, and that someone else made that decision to take them from this earth. You know, and um, so it's I deal with families a lot where I try to prepare them that that day comes when you get that phone call. That doesn't mean everything's perfect again. You know, you, you still have lost that loved one. You still have to deal with that grief and now you have a, a trial to deal with and the and the judicial process uh, which can be a roller coaster in in itself um, so it's it's a very tough place to be I, I understand and appreciate where they are of course they want to be able to call all of these families and tell every single one of them hey look we're trying we're trying we're trying but you do reach a point where that almost causes more harm than good, you know, and, and, and they don't know what, when that moment is until they make the phone call. It's a difficult balance, I can imagine. Um, Sergeant, one last question for you. Uh, what do you need to solve the Vera Sullivan case? Is it DNA evidence? Is it a tip? Or is it both? It's DNA evidence. It's a tip. It's assistance from the community. It's, um, it's 
bringing attention to cold cases. It's, um, it's, that's not one single thing. It's a combination of all those put together. Um, the, it's partnering up with the community, partnering up with uh, Project Cold Case, and there's many other nonprofits out there that are that are very good, you know, the Justice Coalition and what have you. So um, these these partnerships in the community and the community's help, and the tips and Crime Stoppers, um, and I'm I'm going to forget one, but there's there's plenty of them out there. Families of slain children. So we we try to reach out to everyone and anyone that we can to to help a case along. Um, I have four detectives and, and myself and. Every single day, we're looking at cold cases. Uh, we we try, and we've got plenty to look at, and we try to move every case that we can forward. Um, we're always looking for opportunities, whether it's through a grant or you know some kind of financial assistance to help us along with processing DNA. That's an expensive venture. Um, so, and maybe the day will come where uh, Project Cold Case will have a great foundation financially where they can start. Uh, assisting other smaller agencies in processing DNA uh, or paying for it. So, um, but it takes it takes a community. It really does. Uh, we can't do it solely by ourselves. And um, every case that we open, we we go back out and we re-canvas the neighborhoods. We go back to the scene just to look at it to see, you know, kind of get a grasp for the scene and a feel for it. We uh, go back and re-interview witnesses. So we do as much as we can. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to speak in generalities, but I'll use that case as an example. I don't have any the specific information, but if you find DNA on that padding that, that Vera Sullivan is wrapped up in, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the DNA of the killer. You know, it, it, it could be the guy that ripped up the carpeting from his house and, and tossed it in the woods. Uh, it could be a homeless guy that slept on it. You know, so, so you need DNA, yeah, but then you also need you know, that eyewitness. You also need, you know, th there's so much more than just physical evidence. Uh, for a, <laughs> a good solid case and, and a conviction, you want all of it. You know, you want to be able to go in there and tell a jury, we have his, you know, the, the suspects or the defendants um, DNA under her fingernails, you know, not just on a, on a mattress or something like that. And you want to say, we have three witnesses, credible witnesses that put him at the scene or put him uh, bragging about it later on. And, and so, you know, when people, I don't want people to think, oh, well, if they get DNA, then they don't need our help. Like we, the community really can be a part of this and can make, you know, uh, the neighborhood safer and our city safer, and, and they can be a part of making a difference, you know, in Jacksonville. And that's what we want, and we want everybody with information to come forward. Um, no matter how small they think it is, no matter how big it is, and, and we'll let the, the detectives focus on physical evidence, but uh, you know, the goal is always to put together the, the best case and the, and the perfect scenario um, so that we get a conviction and these people can't do this to somebody else. Well, and in Vera's case, we also received a, um, uh, some information from an inmate, and even that becomes interesting at times because Sometimes that information is good. You know, they get it through um, uh, inmates that are incarcerated that want to look to help themselves out on their particular cases. But sometimes what they'll do is they'll they'll do a little bit of homework and read what they can read in the news and the media, and try to um, pull one over on us and say, "Well, I got information on this case. I know that it happened behind Palm Terrace, and that she was wrapped up in a carpet pad. I saw it." You know, and they really didn't. So they're going to come over there. 
And, and it happens. It happens probably more than I care for it to happen that they, they are not truthful and we have to vet that information out. And, you know, are they really bringing something that's valuable to the table or are they just trying to uh, work an angle on us? Is that what happened with the inmate who came forward? Yeah, the, on this particular case, the inmate that came forward, um, he, he named a name and we weren't able to prove that that name was, was, had anything to do with the case. So, and I don't want to say that individual's name because I was not able to make that connection. So, uh, and basically the, the conversation with them is, you gotta give me more than that. You don't, if you don't give me more than that, I don't have anything for you, you know, so. Thank you both for what you do, I appreciate it. Action News Jack's Project Cold Case airs the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month on Action News Jack's at 5.30. You can also find all of our stories, interviews, pictures, and documents on actionnewsjacks.com. Just look for the Project Cold Case button. And listeners, we hope you share this podcast on your social media, on all platforms. Lorena and I also welcome your questions. Just tweet us at Paige A.N. Jax or Lorena A.N. Jax.